Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday the 20th of September with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Doctors knew that the national screening programme for cervical cancer was not 100% effective, but the doctors just didn't bother to tell the women. That's uh, the Sinn Féin assessment of uh, the scoping inquiry into cervical check. Yesterday, the Dáil debated the report into how 221 women with cervical cancer were not informed that their smear test results showing them to be clear were inaccurate. 18 of the women have died. Louise O'Reilly said Dr Gabriel Scully did a good job, but she questioned if the work has finished and if a commission of investigation is needed to get to the bottom of the scandal. The Sinn Féin health spokesperson is on the line. Thanks for joining us, Louise. Uh, The minister said he's to meet with the women and their families next week and the opposition parties after that to work out the best way forward in all of this. So I I take it a little bit like yourself that the minister is undecided at this stage as to whether a commission of investigation is necessary. It does seem that way, um, you know, and I think we all want to do right by the women who have uh, have been impacted by this. I mean, we have to salute the bravery of people like Vicky Field and Lorraine Walsh, Emma Vic Vahuna, Stephen Teep lost his wife and he still somehow manages to find the strength to come out and keep campaigning and, and keep this issue on the agenda. Really, really tough people in a very tough situation. And I think we owe it to them to listen to what they want. But we also, as politicians have a responsibility to uh, ensure that people are held to account for this. And there were limitations in the Scali report. He had no capacity to compel people to cooperate. I mean, I think I was on with yourself, Michael, at Mm. the time when the HSE, well, when the Department of Health were effectively withholding documentation from him or they were giving him documentation in a, a very unwieldy, unreadable format. You know, so we, mm. we th- there were limitations. He was still receiving documents, wasn't he? Sorry to cut across you, but he was still receiving documents days prior to the publication of his report. Yes, he was. Mm. And, you know, there wasn't, uh, perhaps it, it, it did improve, but I know initially there wasn't great cooperation, um, you know, and the, the, the information wasn't forthcoming. Now, that's not to say that he didn't do good work. He absolutely did. But he did that work within the limitations that were placed on him and in a very short period of time. I mean, we have to remember, there's nobody named 
in the Scali report. And that's not me saying, you know, I'm looking for a head. That's not me, mm. you know, uh, going out on a limb here. But there are no names. So, you know, what they what they call a systemic failure. That's fine. But the system is, is made up of people. And, you know, if there were people who are responsible, well, those people need to be held to account because otherwise we won't learn from this. And, you know, we can't change what has happened. Those women um, have gone through what they have gone through, but they have all said, and, and, you know, they're united in this, that what they want to see coming out of it is an improvement. And, Michael, if I could just take a very brief opportunity to say to, to women, please do Get your smear tests done. Put your health first. Yes, we are trying to get this right. Yes, there is some controversy uh, around how the system operated, but there's no dispute among the medical professionals. Professionals, screening saves lives. You know, I'm, I'm a politician. Like I can't, mm. I can't tell anybody yeah. to, to to get it to to engage with the system, but I can say that you know the overwhelming evidence and the advice from the Irish Cancer Society is that screening saves lives, and, and we need to keep putting that out there as well, lest we, we you know, frighten people. And, and I, I know that's how you started your contribution in uh, the Dáil yesterday. It's what one of the survivors, Rosie Condra, has uh, said on this programme. We've heard Vicky Phelan uh, and many medical experts, uh, the Irish Cancer Society, stress that point and it uh, could be a matter of life or death uh, if uh, people decide one way or the other in terms of going for a, a test. It is very important that people do that and we're very happy to carry that message. Uh, but what happens to the slide next, I suppose, is the next question. Perhaps one of the reasons why there might be a need for a commission of investigation, because Dr Scally was pretty guarded, and it would seem prudently so, because of legal constraints and possible legal action that might be taken over slides that went to Houston in Texas. But the Minister was telling the Dáil yesterday that outsourcing wasn't a problem. He did say that, um, you know, and I have to tell you, I'm not convinced. Um, because Dr. Scally, I, I've met with Dr. Scally and, and when I spoke to him, um, he was very clear that the, the labs in the US were not ISO accredited. Mm. And the minister had said in the doll, he acknowledged yesterday that he himself had been misled. Um, but, and the minister acknowledged that himself. But the, but the minister had said previously that the labs were all ISO accredited. Now it turns out they're not. They're accredited by an agency in the States, mm. which, you know, may or may not be fine, but we need to have some further investigation. I remember at the time, 10 years ago, when uh, the Fianna Fáil government were outsourcing the, uh, the smear tests, I, I was working in the union at the time, uh, I made the point that, uh, that we should be making an effort to keep those tests uh, here and keep that screening programme here fully within this state. Um, we, I'm a member of the Joint Directors Committee on Health. We heard from the medical laboratory scientists just before the recess and they were very clear. I mean, I asked them about the decision to outsource 10 years ago. Um, they were very clear that the decision was a political decision. It was not made for clinical reasons. I think we now need to ensure that wherever the tests are carried out, that they are carried out in line with best clinical practice, that we need to remove the political element from this. At the time, the uh, medical laboratory scientists advised me that they were simply told it's been outsourced. There was no necessarily clinical reason for it. And they were very clear. They, and these are their words, not mine. They said this was a political decision, not a clinical decision. And I think that's where the questions have arisen. Um, you know, the, the tender to do this work appears to have gone to the lowest bidder. That's not fair to women. Mm. Um, you know, so if there needs to be an investigation, I, 
Sinn Féin believes, and we highlighted this 10 years ago, actually, Cuisine you know, O'Quailon, uh, very prophetically said in 2008, he said, I shudder to think what we will be dealing with in 10 years' time. And mm. he, was, he was spot on, you know. But they so went he, to Texas, uh, uh, where uh, perhaps the proper accreditation was uh, in place, uh, but uh, apparently the staff were mainly in a, a training role. Uh, and unknown to cervical check, that lab uh, outsourced the work to other labs in San Antonio, Victoria, Texas, Las Vegas, Nevada, Orlando, Florida, Honolulu, Honolulu. and Hawaii. Uh, and uh, Dr. Scully uh, seems to have given a clear indication uh, that uh, there may be legal consequences because of that. Well, the, the, the simple fact is that neither Cervical Tech nor the HSE knew yeah. that there was um, subcontracting of the outsourcing. And that's what happens with outsourcing, Michael. And your listeners will be aware of this. You know, if you contract out something and you give somebody else responsibility for it, you then uh, cannot assume that, uh, that, that, that you are in control because they are then in control. Dr. Scully then- seemed to think that you could assume that because he, he seemed to be saying that there was a, a contract in place and that the contract was very clear uh, and that the test should, be, should have been carried out in Houston, in Texas. Uh, I, I think actually uh, we might be able to hear a little bit of what he said at the press conference uh, on the publication of his report in relation to this. Uh, I need to be guarded in this. These are difficult legal issues. And uh, I've outlined in the report some of the questions we need to answer. But you're quite right. The the dispatch of slides elsewhere in the United States was not revealed to uh, cervical check. They knew nothing of it. Of that, I am absolutely convinced. Uh, The contract very clearly specified Austin. Very clearly specified Austin. Austin, Texas, I beg your pardon. Uh, uh, But he's very clear that it was the view of cervical check that when the slides went to America, they knew where they were going to be tested, and that wasn't the case. But they didn't know. And what what Dr. Scully said in that segment there was that uh, the subcontracting out was not revealed to cervical check. Mm. You see, what I want to know is who was asking, who was watching this, whose responsibility was it to ensure that this was monitored, they handed over slides, vital information belonging to to Irish women who put their faith in the system. They handed over the slides, Mm. believing they were going to be tested in Austin. We now find out some of them made their way to Honolulu, uh, Mm. Hawaii, places I'm not aware of, are centres of excellence. Um, And Dr. Scali says that information was not revealed. But the question I want answered is, you know, who the hell was asking that? You know, it wasn't revealed to them. Maybe the lab themselves didn't write and say, by the way, we are subcontracting out. But nobody in the HSC or cervical check appears to have had any oversight. And do, do, do we need to find out? I, I mean, uh, to ask the same question a, a different way, it would seem that if uh, the 50 recommendations uh, Dr. Scali has made are implemented, that that type of thing won't happen again. Do we need to go over this old ground or can we just move on from here and make sure that the system is fit for purpose? Well, there's a huge amount of outsourcing that goes on within our health service. Uh, the hands-off approach by the HSE to simply sign the cheque and hand over the uh, the services, I don't think uh, best serves the interests of the of the public. But what we're doing now, and, and like I think we, there was unity in the Dáil uh, yesterday evening, 
we're all saying if we need a commission of investigation, then that's what we should have. However, we all want to talk to the women affected. And, and you have to remember, Michael, these women are gravely ill. We can't expect them to be tramping up and down to Dublin to be engaging with us after mm. what they've been through. So we need to, to move at their pace and to ensure that they are happy in the first instance. And, you know, the decision on whether or not to hold a commission of investigation is a political decision and is something that we have to consider because it may be that we need to shine a light even further within the HSE. And don't forget, we are waiting on another report. We're waiting on the Royal College of um, uh, Obstetrics and Gynaecology, or COG as it's known. We're waiting on their report into the 221 slides and into how, uh, you know, how, how the misses happened. You know, and you made a very interesting point at the beginning of this con- of this uh, uh, interview, where you said that the the doctors knew that they weren't a hundred percent. The literature that went out from cervical check, it said actually in black and white because I brought it with me when we were interviewing um, the the HSE at the Joint Rock Health Committee. It said on it very casually, um, screening is not a hundred percent effective. If I say to somebody it's not a hundred percent, you probably think it's about ninety five, you know, ninety six, maybe ninety seven percent. The way that it was couched, I don't think, was uh, was right. So we need to know who was writing this literature, what information were they pushing it. You know, th- there does need mm. to be some accountability. I don't think it's good enough to say there was simply a systemic error. I think we need to look at the system. As, as I've said previously, the system is made up of people, of the people who are within that system. So if there needs to be accountability and that requires an investigation, that's what we should do. However... If we learn from the uh, ORCOG study and if there is sufficient information to move forward with those recommendations, well, then also we need to be prepared to say we may not need a commission of investigation. I think at this Mm. point um, where there is unity of purpose among politicians in that we're saying we want to do right by the women who have been impacted by this. And and see what the women want, I take it. Uh, Simon Harris uh, asked Dr. Scally uh, to look into what happened so that he could formulate the questions for a commission of investigation. But the minister seems open to persuasion because Dr. Scally doesn't feel there's a need for a commission of investigation. We know that because of the leaks to the press before the publication of his report. And you also asked the minister yesterday who had leaked that to the press or what was he doing about finding out who had leaked it? Yeah, and this is something that I found deeply distressing at the time. Actually, during the recess, I wrote to the minister and I requested that the women and the victims and their families be the first to hear the Scali report. I learned through the media then that the minister said, no, he, he felt obliged to bring this report to Cabinet which is what delayed it. The report was ready on Friday, but the Cabinet weren't meeting until uh, it was either the Tuesday or the Wednesday. So the delay happened because he was waiting to bring it to Cabinet. In the end, he actually briefed, Scully, Dr Scully briefed the women uh, and their families, a, a small selection of them, the day before the Cabinet meeting, which just shows uh, that I was right, that the Minister didn't need to bring it to Cabinet, that he could have brought it to the women first. The fact that it was leaked into the media, I mean, the Minister shrugged his shoulders and said, oh yeah, when I said, you know, we need to know uh, where the leak came from. And he said, oh yeah, I want to know where the leak came from. But there were a small number of people, as I understand it, that had access to that report. The report was available from Friday, but really Mm -hmm. what that underlines 
is the fact that, um, you know, perhaps lessons haven't been learned. Perhaps when Antishak and the minister says that we need to put women at the centre of this and we need to put women first, that, you know, maybe that's just words, but their actions don't back it up because somebody... Mm. Um, you know, who comes under the remit of the, of the minister, I would imagine, if they had access to that report. And I'm, I'm reasonably sure it wasn't uh, Dr. Scally that leaked it. In fact, he was very clear with us that it, it wasn't him or a member of his team. So I think we do need to find out where that leak came from. I think it's a relatively simple thing to do, although um, Antishak was very quick to say, yes, I think there should be an investigation. Oh, and by the way, I don't think that that investigation is going to find out who did it. So his expectations... Of the of any investigation have already mm. been established as being very low. And, and where, that said, where I think we do need to. I, I mm. think it would be helpful if we knew who leaked it. But mm. also, I think it, it, the or disrespect why? that was shown. Yeah, yeah the or, disrespect yeah. that was mm. shown to the women and the families. I mean, mm. they used words like heartbroken and mm. kick in the gut. I think was another. But was it a, a selective leak uh, to take away the idea of a commission of investigation? The need for one. Uh, uh, and uh, I mean, as this goes on, the heat goes out of it. Uh, uh, and I wonder where. We're at now because if we think back to May uh, we were on the brink of a revolution uh, the women of Ireland were as angry as they've ever been uh, if not the angriest ever. We're still ever. angry Michael well, we're still angry. I don't know. No illusions we are still angry. As, as it goes on I, I think it's true to say the heat is going out of it and from what the Minister was saying yesterday the next time this comes on the agenda will be in December when and Fortunately, given the reality of the situation, a lot of us will have forgotten the detail and why we were angry. Well, I think it's it's up to the opposition to keep this on the agenda, and that's certainly what we would be doing. Remember, we wouldn't have had uh, the debate and the questions yesterday were it not for an insistence uh, on the part of the opposition. Equally, we uh, we have a role to ensure um, that this is kept to the forefront. And also, Dr. Scally will be at the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Health. My colleague David Cullinan has indicated that the Public Accounts Committee also are going to further investigate. Just remember, you know, I mean, these labs in America that were subcontracting out the work, they're not doing this for free. It's a very lucrative contract for them. Serious amounts of public money are being spent at the moment um, ensuring that the, the, the screening programme, uh, that the, the slides are read and ensuring that the outsourcing continues. So there is a role for uh, parties who are in opposition to ensure that this is kept on the agenda. And I think that we will do that. I mean, I'm sure it would suit the Minister if this just went away and we didn't talk about it for a good few months so that we only mentioned it as we were all heading off for the Christmas holidays. But I don't think it's going to work like that. I think the women of Ireland won't thank us if we take the spotlight off of this. And I think they won't thank us if we simply say, well, look, at there's the 50 recommendations now, toddle off there and, and see how many of them you can implement. This is bigger and more fundamental. Mm. I mean, what, what Dr. Scully mentioned in his report is institutionalised misogyny and an attitude. I mean, there, there, were, there were things said to grieving families uh, along the lines of, well, you know that nuns don't get cervical cancer. Now, Michael, you and I both know and your listeners mm. know what that means. That's disgraceful. And, you know, I think... That if, if people read the Scali report, if they hear the uh, the attitude of a very small minority, but uh, members of the medical profession nonetheless, the dismissive way that women are treated. I know when I read it, I closed the last page of it and I thought, no, this this stops here. We cannot continue to be treated like that. I've heard too many stories from women, women and women who are friends of mine, and also through the media of uh, a kind of a paternalistic, high-handed attitude that the medical profession sometimes take with them, and that has to stop. 
Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Louise O'Reilly is uh, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on health. Now, uh, following on uh, from uh, the storm weather yesterday, there's many people listening to us uh, this morning who continue to be without power and just to mention to you, we will be speaking with the ESB uh, a little bit later on but uh, a list of uh, the areas uh, in front of me that are without power this morning across Louth and Mead, many hundreds of people have seen their power go out on them uh, particularly in places like Duleek where there's over 500 people without power and in Athboy where there's over 200 people without power uh, the bad news for you is uh, that uh, generally speaking across uh, the region nobody will have their power restored before 8 o'clock this evening, possibly 9 o'clock this evening possibly 10 o'clock this evening uh, and they're the estimated times as we speak and of course they're open to change but as I mentioned we'll be hearing from the ESB a little bit later in the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the drinks industry group of Ireland is calling on the government to reduce excise tax on alcohol in the next budget, but I suppose that's what Digi does up to in the run-up to every budget, so it's no different this year. What is different is that they've commissioned a report on alcohol excise taxes across Europe. Anthony Foley is an economist at DCU and the author of this report in he joins us now and a very good morning to you. You've taken a look at the difference in the countries across Europe and what can you tell us about what we're paying to the government every time we have a drink in this country? Yeah, well, I suppose the first point is that, as exactly as you said, it just looks at the excise rates across Europe, the 28 countries. And basically, Ireland comes out close to top of the league. It's uh, Top in the league is Finland with the highest alcohol tax, and we're second, as it were. In terms of individual drinks, we have the highest wine excise in Europe. We have the second highest beer and the third highest spirits. And there's a group of four countries. There's Finland, Ireland, Sweden, the UK, which is way ahead of the rest, as it were, in terms of alcohol taxation. And everyone below them are very far behind those top four. Okay. And I suppose wine kind of, <coughs> excuse me, wine sums it up nicely in that half the countries in Europe don't have a wine excise at all, <coughs> whereas ours is the highest in Europe. For every glass of wine that you'd have in a bar, for example, you'll mm. pay 80 cent per glass in excise tax. Whereas obviously, if you're in those countries with nothing, Italy, Portugal, Austria, Hungary, Germany, and so on, you pay zero excise. So it's a very high alcohol excise economy. You pay zero in these other countries? Is that what you said? That's right. Yeah, there's 14 countries in Europe which have no excise tax on wine at all. And some of those are like very big countries. It's not just the new members, as it were. So Italy has no wine excise. Um, Portugal has no wine excise. Austria, Hungary, Cyprus, Germany, mm. and so on. They have no, and of course, Spain as well. Now, of course, that reflects historical mm. uh, preference for their own native industry, as it were, but basically no excise at all. Whereas yeah, ours right. And there's arguments for and against, uh, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, just looking at uh, the statistics, in this way, uh, which is the facts uh, as such. Uh, there's a, a lot of excise uh, and wine, a good example. Whiskey or a bottle of spirits is uh, a good example. It would appear that about half of what we pay for a bottle of spirits goes to the government. Yes, 
a lot of money in terms of tax. Eleven ninety two on a, a bottle of whiskey, about priced about twenty five, because obviously the total tax includes the VAT, which depends on the price, as it were. But in terms of um, just the, the excise on a bottle of whiskey, it's eleven ninety two, uh, and that's again very high by European standards. The highest, in fact, is Sweden fourteen euro, Finland thirteen forty, but then it drops fairly dramatically. The UK nine, Denmark five, Belgium eight, seven, and so on. So yeah, very high in terms of the the spirits excise. Okay, but uh, there is the argument that this is a, a public health policy and that it reduces consumption. Yes, there's there's basically two approaches you can take. One, you have the fact that we are the highest in mm. Europe or the second highest in Europe, depending on the drink and so on. And then, of course, you then say, well, what does that mean we should do? Maybe someone might argue we're only the second highest, we should be the highest and therefore we should be increasing it. On the other hand, you might argue we're the second highest. Why is that the case? We have a, a fairly large hospitality industry. We depend on it significantly. Mm. Is there a logic? And if the logic is, as it were, that yes, we have high taxes because we want to reduce consumption and do away with or reduce um, misuse of alcohol. Except the the problem arises in terms of the high taxes that we've had high taxes for many years. And I don't think there's many people would say that that has solved our abuse of alcohol issues that arise. So Mm -hmm. there'll be lots of other reasons as well. But you're absolutely right. The facts are as we've presented. And then the issue is what do we do about those facts and what's our particular Mm -hmm. view as to the next step, as it were. But even if it has no impact on consumption, uh, it's a a very effective way of raising revenue for the government and uh, vital funding for the exchequer, which will go to pay for other things. And I suppose you could also argue that if you were to reduce the taxes on alcohol uh, to the level that perhaps they have in Romania, well, then perhaps we could expect a Romanian type of health service. Uh, well, a lot of people might argue their health services a lot to be, be better, yeah. despite the money we put into it, which is reasonably high by European standards. But you're absolutely right again. We collect in excise about a billion and a quarter from alcohol. And of course, that contributes to the overall government budget. Um, but then it's true of any tax. Any tax that we collect obviously has to be paid by taxpayers. And the thing about alcohol taxes, we have about 80% of the population drink alcohol. So that tax is borne by the 80% of the population. It's also a relatively regressive tax because obviously if you're buying a, a pint in a, a deluxe five-star bar versus a cheap bar, as it were, mm. you'll pay the same excise regardless of what the price is. If you're buying a bottle of wine and it's a 100 euro versus 10 euro you'll pay the same excise because that doesn't change in terms of the the price of the product the vat will change but not the excise but yes it's part of government's budgetary issue it has to collect money we have to have taxes but we pride ourselves to a certain extent on being a low tax economy as part of government policy and tax as a percentage of gdp is relatively low by european countries and now we know we have our problems with gdp but it's still even low by the the standards of the the denmark and the sweden and so on if we look at gni modified as the measure of the economy but we 
aren't a low tax in terms of alcohol. We've mm. low corporation tax. We argue our income tax is too high and it has to be reduced as a priority. But we kind of forget about the fact that while we're a low tax economy, we're a very high tax economy on certain things and alcohol excise would be one of them. So then you're at least in the position of saying, well, why is that the case? Is that the way we want it to be? Mm. Has it happened haphazardly or is it basically precisely where we want to be? And of course, that's the government policy decision. All right, and we leave people to make up their own minds on those facts. Uh, I'm sure the drinks industry will be taking the facts that you've compiled in your report and making them known to the Minister ahead of yes. Budget Day, but uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you for joining thank us. You, thank you. Anthony Foley, DCU economist and author of Alcohol Excise Tax in Europe, Where Does Ireland Rank? Michael Reed on LMFM. In line with uh, the presidential election, it's expected that there will be a referendum on the 26th of October as uh, to whether to remove uh, blasphemy from the Constitution or not. It had been thought that there would be a second referendum on that day to remove uh, the reference to women in the home from the Constitution. It appears now that that will not be possible because of a delay in the all bringing forward the necessary legislation but uh, this has been discussed uh, by the Oireachtas Committee which heard from several groups yesterday including the National Women's Council of Ireland. Orla O'Connor is uh, the Director of the Women's Council and she joins us now and Orla uh, you want to see this go into a, a citizens assembly type of conversation? We do, we think there needs to be um, a wider public conversation on Article 41.2. And I think what's what's important, and this is the article that's um, you know, referred to as the women in the home article, it talks about women's duties in, in the home and neglect of duties and her role being in the home. Um, and what the government have suggested is, is that there is a straight deletion. And what we found from talking to our members all over the country is that while everybody everybody agrees that the language within that article, like when it talks about duties and it talks about neglect, that the language is sexist and it's discriminatory and it needs to go. And, it, and everyone is in agreement on that. But immediately the conversation goes to a conversation about care, about family, you know, family life, home life, um, about women's you know, women's work within the home, about women's work outside, about men's involvement in the home. So it gets into a complex range of issues. And all of the different bodies who have advised the government on this going back over years, and I mean, I listed them yesterday in the, um, at the Iraq This Committee, they've all recommended to government that, in fact, it should be replaced with um, a recognition of care. And uh, so that the constitution would value and recognise care. Now, the government have recommended straight deletion um, because... They believe that they, well, they're saying that they believe that there is, um, you know, legal issues mm. with, with the replacement, and we think we need to have a wider conversation. And and I think what's important about that, and certainly from from talking with women and with women's organisations, that piece around valuing and recognition of care is really important to women. But it's also uh, what's important is that that it isn't only symbolic, that, that there needs to be practical things done. So what we're asking, and it's similar, if you like, to the process around the Eighth Amendment, that it looks at constitutional options, but also legislative options. So that we may end up with, a, a, you know, going into a referendum where it's very clear what the government are saying they're going to commit to in legislation, so that people can see that, yes, there is a, there is a commitment and a recognition of care and carers. 
Um, and it is broader than carers. You know, it's about looking at the whole mm. issue of care. Um, and and I, I certainly believe, and you know, in the Women's Council, we believe that this referendum could be a real opportunity to advance women's equality rather than simply to say, OK, well, we've removed that now and let's move on. Mm, because I think some people were surprised to hear that the Women's Council wasn't necessarily advocating a, a deletion of Article 41.2. Uh, and... This is the part of the Constitution uh, that refers uh, to the family and the importance of uh, the family in Irish society, and in particular that the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved, and that the state shall therefore endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. Uh, Is it a simple simple as replacing the word mother or woman or her with something that refers to a, a gender neutral uh, position that somebody might uh, adopt in caring for somebody else in the home well that well that is one option that that you change the language and and to be you know absolutely clear the women's council of course wants that language deleted mm, it, is mm, mm. it is discriminatory but okay so one option might be to to um to make it gender neutral, but we we don't believe that that will, that goes far enough, and it doesn't it doesn't recognise and value care. To, I, I think to the extent that people want. So, for example, you know, caring happens outside the home, um, as well as inside the home, and that that needs to be recognised. Absolutely, the role of men within that needs to be recognised. So it's 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 something more, I suppose, positive in terms of recognising the value of care to, to all our society, in terms of both receiving care and giving care. So, so we, we would like to see that valued in, in a broader way. And yes, it may only be symbolic. I mean, we do recognise that that article comes within a definition of the family, which is mm. based on marriage, and that's very problematic and it's not something that, that we would want. So there might also be the option of looking at looking at valuing care within another place in the constitution. Um, I wonder uh, there are complex there are complex yeah. issues around this, and that's why we think it would be better to trash them out. Mm. Well, the constitution is never straightforward, uh, but I suppose uh, in uh, framing my next question, uh, I'd have to ask first of all, what are a woman's duties in the home, uh, and if there's a ri- risk of neglecting her duties in the home by going going to work. As things stand, given the wording of the Constitution, uh, is there a legal ground, a ground for taking a legal action against the state if a woman feels forced to work uh, by necessity in order to have a, a enough money for her family to survive? Yeah, well, I mean, the, I suppose the piece is that this article really has never given anything. Mm. Um, and and, and yesterday, you know, at the Iraqis Committee, both um, representatives from the Human Rights Commission and there was also a legal expert mm. in there, Laura Callanan, said, you know, it's it's never really it's through the courts. This hasn't this hasn't given women anything. It hasn't. Um, okay, but Emily Logan of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission was suggesting that it could cost the state if there was a constitutional recognition of caring in the home, uh, and that the carer could uh, seek vindication uh, for their economic rights from the state. Uh, and I, th- I suppose that's the reason I was putting yeah. the first question right, to you. If, yeah. if, if a carer could do that, if you were to change the yeah. wording, why can't a woman do that now? Well, 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good legal question, but the fact is it's never been interpreted to give those rights. And I think the thing, you know, I think what's important about this, and that's why we're saying that we need to look at legislative options here as well, because, of course, when you put something into the Constitution, it can, it, it, it can infer rights. And, and what's important here is that, I mean, and there are pieces in the Constitution, like, for example, you know, we have the, the, the right in terms of free education, mm. but then that's up to the interpretation of government as to how that is provided. And similarly, I suppose what we're saying is that, so if, if you... If you include the value of care, mm. then it's also important that the government say, and legislatively, this is how how we see that. And of course, mm. there are supports already there for carers. In our view, there are many aspects around care that don't have the supports. And so, I mean, one of the things I was highlighting yesterday is that, you know, Ireland is, you know, we pay the highest cost for childcare here. Mm. So, so there are there are absolutely issues that will, if you like, fall from it. But they are issues then that need to be dealt with in in legislation. Oh well, that's it. I mean, we voted in a, a children's rights referendum, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think that meant that children, uh, through no fault of their own, should be homeless or impoverished, exactly, exactly. or, or uh, mm. not entitled to a free education, or, or any of these other things. Uh, so quite often, the constitution becomes irrelevant. Well, and. In, in a lot of cases, it becomes symbolic. And, and, and also, what I would say is those symbols are important. And I think, you know, so if, it, so if we include a statement in the Constitution where we're recognising and valuing care, and it is symbolic, but then we're saying very clearly, and we're saying this prior to a referendum, that also there is a legislative piece where the government are committing to, an, um, mm. to, to providing those supports. And, and I think that's the... That is the, if you like, the positive out of this referendum. That's how the referendum, there is a real opportunity with this referendum to bring forward women's equality rather than simply have a referendum of yes, no or on the language and then and nothing is progressed. Okay. And, I, and I, I think that's, you know, in terms of the government's proposal, that's really what they're talking about. They're okay. talking about simple deletion and let's really not address any of the issues that are being raised in 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 that discussion I have to leave women it there, and men. I'm over time I have to leave it there as I thank say you. but thank you indeed for joining us this morning Orla O'Connor Director of the National Women's Council of Ireland Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM Now let's find out what you've been saying to us Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning Good morning to you Maggie Good morning Michael How are you doing? Good stuff. Um, I'll just start off actually with a message for anybody who's using the bus services in the area this morning. Um, bus Aaron tweeted us just in the last couple of minutes um, to say that they regret that Castletown and Mead is not accessible on Route 107 due to a fallen tree and that Ballybarrack Knockbridge is not accessible on Route 167 due to fallen power line, lines but that both routes will operate as normal otherwise. Alright, uh, so still some ongoing uh, fallout from uh, the strong winds yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah. they're working mm-hmm. on the issues as fast as they can so they said they'd keep us updated on any other information that they had. Okay, as we were saying earlier on, uh, there's a, a lot of people who are still without power this morning and uh, it would appear as uh, though uh, it'll be this evening, maybe 8, 9 or 10 o'clock before their power will be restored. Uh, but uh, the ESB uh, obviously working on it as we speak. And Grania Burns, spokesperson for ESB Networks, is on the line. Good morning to you, Grania. Uh, Good morning. What, what can you tell us? Well, at the moment, nationwide, there are 39,000 homes, farms and businesses without power. That is significantly down from the 186,000 from yesterday morning. In the Louth area, unfortunately, there are 1,600 customers without power. They are predominantly in the Drogheda and Dundalk area, 
We are expecting everyone to have full power back by this evening. Um, I suppose the main issue is that there are a lot of individual faults. So all our network crews have to go out and go through each of those individual faults to restore power. That takes a timely process. Um, so what we, um, why we hope to have everyone back, back but tonight, though. Okay, but we're talking, what, 8, 9, 10 o'clock? They're the estimated times uh, at this stage well, for most customers. Hopefully even earlier, if possible. All our crews have been deployed from the areas that we've restored power, so they're on, on site um, since early morning um, restoring the power. So hopefully by this evening we'll have everyone back. Um, one of the main issues we have, there are a lot of low lines on the ground. These are live electricity wires. Mm. So we are advising, please, if you see a wire, do not touch it. It is still live and it's still very dangerous. And to ring ESB networks at one 372 And Also, customers who are impacted, they can go on to www.powercheck.ie and they will, all the estimated restoration times are updated um, at, at constantly. Okay, and uh, we have heard uh, from Busser and indeed uh, the service cancelled because of lines down and undoubtedly that's something that you're trying to deal with uh, as quickly as possible. Is it one of uh, the reasons that you have helicopters in place? We do, and just so the helicopters are being deployed just to give sight of all the different, because there's so many wires down, so it gives a greater vision and the Air Corps are facilitating this and this would hopefully expedite the process as well. Okay, and uh, landowners should be uh, aware that there will be helicopters and uh, particularly uh, because of the type of work that you're doing because uh, they'll need to fly fairly low. Exactly, it is, will have to fly low um, and we just, as with everyone is advised now to be very vigilant of the, the low-line wires. So if you do see one, please do ring ESP Networks at one eight fifty three seven two nine nine nine. Okay, but generally speaking, the estimated time for restored power is 8 o'clock onwards, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, that type of thing will be earlier. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If it's possible, uh, as you say, uh, but people can watch uh, the revised estimated, estimated times uh, on your website. And thank you indeed yes. for joining us. Perfect. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Grania Byrne, spokesperson with ESB Networks. Now, uh, important information there, Maggie. What else uh, have uh, people been talking to you about on the phones this morning? Well, actually staying with ESB outages, mm. just for once, we had a call just into the line a couple of minutes ago, which Grania and her colleagues might appreciate. Um, Sheila and Omid rang to express her thanks to the ESB and, and council workers who worked tirelessly to retrieve her electricity for her yesterday evening. She's saying they worked in very dangerous situations and she's hugely grateful as are her neighbours for them putting in oh, the effort sure. and putting yeah, in the hours. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, Martin contacted us as well in relation to Storm Alley. He's saying that he's baffled by the attitude of some government representatives and even by Met Aaron when it comes to Storm Alley. They've suggested that our infrastructure systems were prepped for the weather yesterday but the public weren't and he's asking the question, well isn't it the job of Met Aaron and state bodies to help prepare the pub- public for these scenarios? Um, and he's saying, in his opinion, they failed to do that. This storm was only ever given an orange status. Well, back in October, when Ophelia hit, we were getting hourly safety messages and the, mm. the country kind of essentially shut down and he doesn't feel that the same level of importance was attached to this. And mm. he believes that this one was stronger than yeah. Ophelia was, mm. as, as many people yeah. kind of seem to be saying. And a lot of people do seem to be saying that, uh, but it's not the view of Met Aaron. They say that it, it, it was a yellow stroke orange status, that there was a, a red status gust in one mm. part of the country at one stage but generally speaking the warnings were right uh, and the difference was uh, that uh, the uh, trees are in full leaf uh, and indeed uh, the dry weather has helped to uproot them because of the high winds. Yeah and I think mm. the one thing where they did consider they may have kind of got it not wrong as such but they may have you know fallen short a little bit is the length of it. They kind of had thought it was going to pass by a certain time by one mm. o'clock or something like that and it stayed longer than originally mm. anticipated mm. but other than that ever now it seems to have been spot on, yeah. on the mm. predictions. Yeah. So. And the warnings were there uh, yeah. and you know I, I think there's a, a warning fatigue that people have been talking about it as well that we, we have had quite yeah, a lot of storms. We've had a lot of storms, had a lot of warnings. Uh, a lot of people were given out uh, during Ophelia saying that the warnings were too stark yeah. a, and that there was, sure, there was only a bit of wind and yeah. that sort of thing. So uh, I imagine from Matt Aaron's point of view, it's damned if you do and damned, damned if you, you don't. don't. But, well, and and mm. apparently Storm Brown is on the way as well. So well, no, goes. no, no. Oh, no, it's no. Well, they don't know. There's, there's the potential of a storm. Okay. Uh, and if there is a storm, they will name it Brona. Oh, okay. So I'm ahead of myself here, am I? Well, you're not the only one, it has to be said. I think all of the papers are talking about the, uh, that Storm Brona might hit. Storm, Bro- Storm Brona has not been named. Uh, oh, you know, you and maybe I'm just being a bit smarter for Nicky. <laughs> but uh, 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 if they decide that it's going to, we're going to get very wet and very windy weather this mm-hmm. weekend. That's what Baron, Matt Aaron is saying. They haven't yeah. decided yet. They haven't concluded yet as to whether it will be a storm. If it is a storm, they'll give it a name and that name will be Brona. Lucky Brona. Mm. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, uh, moving on to other issues. Mm. Um, obviously, your first interview with Louise or, uh, O'Reilly struck a chord with a lot of people. And Anne was in contact with us to say that she totally agrees with Louise, um, with Louise's point earlier that it's it's not good enough to blame the scandal on a systems error, that the women involved deserve answers for how they were treated and an explanation as to how the mess was allowed to happen in the first place. She's saying it's not a Mickey Mouse issue. That those involved in covering mm. up this scandal were literally playing with people's lives and they need to be held accountable for what went on. Okay, well, uh, the 
the Minister and indeed it would seem the opposition are waiting to hear what the women would like to see happen next. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And on the same issue, Sarah said she has um, the height of respect for Dr Scully and what he's achieved so far with his work on the scandal. She said listening to him read quotes of some of the horrible things said to the women by their doctors, mm. the very people who were supposed to be caring for them, um, was sickening and heartbreaking in equal measures. And she said she doesn't mind admitting that she shed a tear at some of it. Um, what those women and their families have, have been through is unforgivable and they deserve answers and so much more. And she says we have to learn from this and make sure that no Irish woman ever has to go through something like that again. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose a lot of us can identify with what's been said there and uh, it's something that has uh, touched most people's homes at, at this stage when mm-hmm. it's a, a misdiagnosis or information has not been passed on to people, uh, it is all the more questionable. Absolutely. Yeah. And staying with that as well, Deirdre um, was saying that the whole scandal was a total outrage, only for Vicky Phelan. We wouldn't know anything about it. Um, it. It was completely unfair to those women to have their medical information but held like that. They should have been told and the doctors involved should hang their heads in shame. Mm. She's saying Dr Scully's doing a great job and is getting much needed answers. Yeah, well I suppose for a few weeks on from the report at this stage, uh, many weeks on from uh, when and Vicky Valen uh, decided uh, to contest uh, her case and uh, had that settlement made. Uh, but uh, at this stage, uh, I'm not sure that we've heard of any doctors apologising face to face with any of the women, which was mm. what Dr. Scully was suggesting they do. Yeah, but uh, we'll have to wait and see if that happens. Mm. Um, moving on to another issue. Um, of the tax on alcohol, Mark from Drogheda is saying that he's not surprised at all to hear that they or as the government mm. are able to tax alcohol whatever uh, whatever rate they like in Ireland. He says we have such a depe- dependency on drink in this country that you could charge any amount you want and you'd still have people buying it. Yeah, maybe that's the point. Yeah, mm. um, he's saying that if, if Irish people had any willpower at all, then everyone in the country would agree that they wouldn't buy alcohol for a week and see how badly it affects government uh, coffers <laughs> and, and do it as kind of like a mass yeah. protest of, mm. you know, a, I don't know, dry week, I suppose, yeah. really. But he bets that um, Irish people won't be able to give up drink for even that short amount of time, even if it was to prove a point and save okay. the money in the long run. Yeah. Um, Tom is saying it's no great surprise to anyone to find out that we pay more excised uh, tax on drink than some of our European neighbours. Than most of them, bar, bar Finland it yeah. seems. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, well, yeah Finland, that yeah. was it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's saying it's just another example of how we're ripped off in this country at absolutely every turn. Um, Mary rang in in relation to your conversation with Orla O'Connor um, and the issue of women, the women's place in the home and the constitution. She it was, is interesting, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting. I think that it's still in the constitution. Yeah, but isn't it an inter- interesting position that the women's council is, is taking? They're saying, don't just delete the wording mm. Mm. and take a look, step back, back and look at it. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, it is. It is. It's, mm. an, it's an interesting point of view for them to have. Um, but um, Mary is asking, why are we still talking about it in the first place? She said, if the wording of the Constitution was as old-fashioned when it came to the role of men in the home and it, or men in Irish society... Well, I think it is. Well... It, it is, because it's talking about women's place in the home. And that's an old-fashioned attitude towards men, uh, towards women, yeah. obviously, but also towards men. Yeah, uh, no, that's because true. it gives some superiority or something. I don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah, but that's I mean, true. Yeah. But if she's saying uh, that if the yeah. Constitution said that a man's place was dying in the battlefield, as it w- would have been seen, I suppose, at one point, well, then the Constitution would have been changed or the wording would have been changed a long time ago. Killing in the battlefield, I think, probably, Killing. rather than dying. Oh, really? OK. 
okay, okay. Yeah. And on that issue as well, um, John is saying he didn't realise that there were so many issues related to changing the role of, of the woman in the, um, in the home in the constitution and mm-hmm. how it might affect uh, careers going forward. He says that many people will not realise the implication of changing the wording and he thinks it should be changed but it should be considered carefully before we just rush into it. Yeah, well you don't change anything in the constitution uh, without uh, careful consideration. Uh, it's a very complicated document and if you change one part of it, it can have consequences for other effects, parts. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And going back to um, tax on drink, um, Mary Singh, it's clear that government are basically trying to reduce the amount of drink people uh, intake in this country, that when they want to get people to stop doing something, they simply tax it to ridiculous levels. She's saying that um, plastic bags and cigarettes are prime mm. examples of this. When they wanted people to cut back their usage or whatever, they just mm. taxed it to the health. And and she says that in the case of booze and cigarettes, uh, taxing is going to make no difference whatsoever. It's going to do little to stop people from buying them if they want them. Okay. Mm. And um, I think that's really it. Mark, all right, honest, okay, you, yeah. well, that's quite a lot. Many thanks for that, uh, and uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us for that matter. Uh, and uh, Maggie will continue to take calls uh, through the morning as well. Ross is also taking calls for us today, and our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. If you'd like to add to what's been said, that's eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight, or you can text us on oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've uh, been hearing, uh, the Taoiseach and other European leaders have uh, been enjoying uh, the sights in Salzburg, but have enjoyed little in terms of a Brexit uh, agreement. Uh, Theresa May has uh, continued to talk about the Chequers proposals and it appears as though the talks will go on until November Uh, pushing back the deadline that was October. We're joined now by Minister Helen McEntee, Minister of State for European Affairs, uh, Fine Gael TD for me. Minister, uh, it seems as though uh, this is being pushed out. Uh, Well, from our point of view, uh, it's not. And I think we are very clear, and I suppose we have been saying, and, and the Taoiseach very clearly said this morning in a meeting with the Prime Minister that pushing out a deadline to November really doesn't actually change things. It doesn't solve things. Uh, and so for us, we need to see, uh, if not in principle, then certainly a very firm agreement by October. Um, we had a meeting this morning, obviously, we're, we're out in Salzburg while the, I suppose, the informal discussion or the, the very formal informal is uh, on migration and now this morning security. But at lunchtime, there will be a discussion among the 27 member states um, about Brexit. And Theresa May last night had an opportunity, essentially, I suppose, to give their current position. From our point of view, there is still a lot of work to do. Um, Michel Barnier in the last few weeks has been intensifying the discussions and I suppose he has been trying to come at it from a different approach. Um, a lot of the discussion and I think a lot of the drama has been, I suppose, political drama. And so mm. I suppose it's, it's focusing on well, what's currently there, how can we build on what's there and how we can use that to, to fulfil the commitments that but we've Ms. all given, including Theresa May. Mrs. May hasn't given any reason for believing uh, that there is scope for hope, has she? Well, I think she has, and certainly in the meeting today, um, I think it was a positive meeting, but as I've said, I think it's very clear that there's still a lot of work to do. Um, it's apparent now that the, the UK have further proposals that they want to bring to the task force um, that they feel will help in the discussion. Now, obviously, from our point of view, this is what we have been waiting for for the past 
uh, well, since last December and again mm. since last March. So the sooner that that can happen, and it can't just be a proposal of ideas, it has to be in written format, it has to be in a legal format, mm. and it has to be something that can stand up in a court of law. And that's, uh, are, are they going to accept a, a border in the Irish Sea? Well, I suppose the, none of us want to border down the Irish Sea, and what mm. we're actually talking about is the fact that you currently have checks in Northern Ireland. You currently have a different scenario in some areas in the north, and it's how do we build on that and how do we make it work. So nobody is, you know, and that's, I suppose, the de-dramatising it, moving away from talks about borders anywhere, north or south, east or west, mm. um, and that we try and make it work. And Theresa May is uh, amiable to that, I think. Uh, the government is amiable to that. And they are, as I said, we believe will, will be providing uh, further clarity from their point of view. And I would hope sooner rather than later, we know that the Conservative conference is happening in a week and a half. So whether we'll see that before us, I, I suppose, is debatable. Mm. But the, so, the time is getting shorter. So, so, so in effect, she's willing to annex Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom? No, I think she's very clear that there cannot be... Um, a border that divides them. However, what I think is clear and what they understand is that there are ways in which we can actually uh, resolve the impasse that we find ourselves in and that we can actually So where will the border the be, Minister? Well, what we know, and, and Michel Barnier on uh, Monday, so I attended my own General Affairs Committee where we have 28 uh, and then for the, the Brexit talk, 27 EU ministers, Michel Barnier mm. uh, presented, I suppose, where we currently are now and to give an example, uh, which I suppose... He, he said he was going to try and make it more palatable for the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister seemed to be rejecting what he was saying, that in effect it would mean a border in the sea. Uh, so if it's not a border in the sea and it's not a border on the island of Ireland, where will the border be? So what Michel Barnier talked about, and to give an example, as I've said, is if you have movement of animals, mm. um, at the moment there are checks from Northern Ireland to the rest of the UK, it's about 10%. But mm. what he clearly outlined is that uh, of all the goods coming from the UK to Northern Ireland, 50% come through um, Ireland. So you would have to increase the checks. You would have to develop what's already there uh, and increase it, in fact. And I suppose the discussion then after that is that this is not just in terms of goods. This is not just the single market. This is the custom space. Mm. Uh, and that is, I suppose, the final but well, they would be European checks. A lot to do. They would be European checks on a, a state outside the European Union, uh, and that would mean, in effect, a, a border in the sea. I mean, that seems to have been the interpretation from the British government, doesn't it? Well, my own interpretation from the meeting this morning is that the British government uh, do feel that there's a way that we can reach an agreement on this. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of reports uh, in the media over the past while, mm. some of it is correct, some of it's not correct. Um, and I think what we need to allow is those who are experts in terms of customs, in terms of regulation, which is the task force, uh, the people working on the, the team with Mr Barnier and the Commission to, I suppose, engage. We need mm. the, the UK to come forward with this written uh, proposals as quickly as possible and we need to allow them to do that. So any negotiations while we may engage with Theresa May and obviously... It's important that we understand where everybody's coming from. We need to allow them to actually do the negotiating and to find find a resolution to this. But it's more complicated than that, Minister, isn't it? Or maybe not as complicated in that, that whilst you have experts in customs and the movement of goods and so on, this is really about politics and perception and what people believe to be the border and what Northern Ireland is and if it is part of the United Kingdom or if it is part of the European Union? 
And I think, and, and I certainly respect that. So in the same way that we are asking the UK and our European colleagues very much understand to respect the position that we are in, the extremely uh, challenging uh, dynamic in Northern Ireland, mm. um, to respect that. And that's why we have insisted that we cannot return to a hard border. But in the same way, we respect the integrity uh, of the UK and we absolutely understand uh, where the Prime Minister is coming from. However, you're right in saying this is, you know, and, and de-dramatising mm. it, it's taking the politics out of it, it's taking the voices that we're hearing constantly with maybe different rhetoric, different uh, views or different proposals, it's taking that completely out of it. It's allowing the task force and the UK's negotiating team to actually get down to the detail of what does this actually mean if we take the politics mm. out of it. Do you trust the Europeans, Minister? I absolutely do. Mm. Um, even, I though, even though do. Donald Tusk, uh, against uh, the wishes of the Irish, is going to look to push this deadline out from October to November? So I think the deadline is very much still October. Um, if we do have another summit, that's yet to be decided and perhaps we'll know later on after the meeting at lunchtime today which is specifically for Brexit uh, but our very clear understanding from Michel Barnier is that they are still working towards mm. an October I deadline think, I think the expectation think is that, that by this afternoon that deadline will be pushed out to November For us again that doesn't change the urgency and the need I mean if we change Okay, well it, it changes the November, deadline Okay but it's against the wishes of the Irish government, uh, as you've clearly stated to us, uh, and it wouldn't be the first time uh, that uh, we've been let down by the Europeans, uh, because uh, I'm sure you'll remember well in 2011 when Michael Noonan was on his way into the Dáil to talk uh, about burning bondholders, and he was warned uh, by Jean-Claude Trichet uh, that a, a bomb would go off in Dublin. I, uh, I I suppose all I, all I can reiterate is that I believe we have the full support of the EU that they are very much looking at this as a small member state who will be uh, impacted in a huge way if this does not work. Uh, I know that a lot of my colleagues from smaller member states mm. as well are looking at this and saying, well, if Ireland can't be protected and if, if we cannot get the right outcome here, then what does this mean for us? So I think the larger member states are very conscious of that as well because mm. they understand that uh, a country might be small, but they have the same voice, they have the same vote around the table, they have the same weight as anybody else. And so this is about unity. Mm. And certainly from my own point of well, view... Well, quite, we quite often, Minister, with Europe, uh, it's about uh, who has the most clout, as we learned back in 2011, when we weren't allowed to burn the bondholders. Uh, uh, six billion uh, was uh, instead given to the uh, senior investors in Anglo-Irish Bank at the time. Uh, but this also calls into question why have we the unwavering support of our European partners uh, and can we trust them? Uh, because I've been asking you since uh, the vote in uh, the UK for a Brexit, uh, if it was in return for a change in our corpora- corporation tax rates or if it was in return for a change in our defence policy. It seems though. Uh, as though it, it is at least for corporation tax, uh, and that's uh, based on the report uh, from Bloomberg this week. Absolutely not, and I'm going to say we're, we're actually not uh, scratching our heads as to where that has come from. There's now a suggestion this morning that there's several sources, but I can tell you from my own point of view, from the Taoiseach's point of view, and from the officials who are in Brussels and dealing with this and engaging with their own European colleagues, this has never come on the table. Yes, the issue of tax in a more general 
discussion has and always will come up, I think, and it was raised on Monday in a completely different context, but directly linked to Brexit. Um, this is not something that has ever been raised. It's not something that has been suggested to us, and it's not something that we will countenance either. Solidar- so, uh, solidarity I- doesn't come for free, according to a European official who asked not to be identified because they aren't authorised to speak publicly on the matter. This is a, according to one of... Uh, the most credible news agencies in the world, Bloomberg, said that given the EU's unwavering support around Brexit, it would be politically unsustainable for Ireland to be the sole blocker of tax changes. Any tax proposal will need the unanimous approval of all EU members before becoming law, meaning a single country could block it. Uh, But uh, they're suggesting that Ireland has been told by Jean-Claude Juncker uh, that uh, we should be uh, dropping our opposition to the digital tax and he'll be looking for that in return for this unwavering support around Brexit. What I would say on that is the credible source that can't be named, uh, if you were to take myself as a source who sits around a table with 27 European ministers who have all uh, who not one of them have mentioned this, have not raised this, the Taoiseach who engages with his European leaders, this has never been raised and in terms of support uh, for the manner in which we deal with uh, digital tax, this is something that we have said yes, there needs to be a resolution, you need to ensure that where value is created and that there is a base but we're not alone in this, there's a lot of other colleagues and countries who are very much in favour of this, the Commission did its own report last, well, this year um, and a lot of colleagues are now looking at it and saying, okay, perhaps we need to move on a more universal base, so this is not Ireland versus the rest of the EU. As I mentioned earlier, it's very much a case we have other smaller member states looking at this and saying, well, if Ireland can't be protected as a country that is very much remaining in the EU, that is very much supportive of the single market and the customs union, then what does that mean for the rest of us? And, and the, the larger member states are conscious of that too. So this is about EU 7, 27 unity. But at the same time, the UK is our closest neighbour. We do not want to have barriers with the east-west. We don't want to have uh, a disruption. We don't want to have disruption and movement of people in our trade. And that is why we're all working to try and get the best outcome. But of course, I, I think like a lot of people, we would be remiss if we weren't preparing. And, and today, dishonesty with our Minister for Business and Agriculture launched another series of events that are happening in the month of October, which will allow people to come and hear more about how they can be Brexit prepared because even if we get the best possible outcome there will still be some level of change and it's okay. to make sure that there's as little impact as possible on people. Okay Minister we have to leave there, we're over time but thank you indeed for your time and for joining thank us you, this morning. That's uh, Minister Helen McEntee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the Health Committee, which heard yesterday that doctors are going to find it very difficult to introduce abortion for up to 12,000 women a year from January of next year. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen is a, a member of uh, that committee and he's on the line. Were you surprised, Senator, that there will be so many abortions as a result of the introduction of the legislation? Yeah, it was interesting because I, I think it was Dr. Peter Boyland who referenced the rate of abortions in Scotland last year. Scotland has a population uh, similar to our own, and uh, he said that they'd had 12,100 abortions in Scotland last year. Um, this was a point I would have made myself before the referendum that Ireland has a very low comparative rate of abortions with Britain. This was because of the Eighth Amendment, I argued. Uh, we, you know, we yeah. have like between three or four, three and four thousand 
uh, women having abortions, uh, giving Irish addresses. And, you know, as far as we can ascertain, though, that, that is an accurate picture of the number of Irish women having abortions abroad. So you have this vastly increased figure um, now being talked about, but only now being talked about. Okay, after. but right. based on the figures in the United Kingdom, I think it was Kate O'Connell uh, who uh, had supported the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, had thought that the figure would have been in the region of 5,000 terminations a year. That's right, and uh, you know that the, the that was the the line uh, from the the, the pro repeal side was to, you know, either not debate the fact that Ireland seemed to have a much lower rate of abortions than Britain, or or try and call into question uh, the the Irish abortion figures, suggesting that people, mm. you know, that there was more women having abortions that were given Irish Irish addresses. But there's no there's no real enthusiasm for making that argument because nobody really believes it. So now. The coast was clear, so to speak, and you had uh, Dr. Boylan there and others. He was there on behalf of the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And just kind of mentioning almost in passing, you know, a rate of about 12,000 abortions in Scotland. So that's what you'd aim for. And you can't, uh, he also said it's not as simple as dividing the amount of uh, abortions by the amount of doctors in the country, because not all doctors will... Uh, be uh, party to this procedure and uh, there'll be more demand in certain parts of the country. So you're going to have clusters. uh, So you're going to have a huge demand on some GP services. Yes, what you kind of got was the grudging admission that this represents, you know, big, big administrative problems. Um, you know, um, a demographic cliff in this. You know, the doctors um, going out of the out of the profession. Um, many doctors, as we know, will have a conscientious objection, and certainly there would be parts of the country, uh, you know, where it might be very difficult to get, uh, you know, and kind of places like Donegal and Kerry were being mentioned, where you know many doctors, you know, where it would be hardly possible to provide uh, ab- abortions. So again, the the practical difficulties are, are now being discussed because the way is clear and they want to drive it on. And in many ways, when you consider the impact on our health service, even leaving aside the rights and wrongs of abortion, it's remarkable how there is just such determination to get this all up and running uh, by January. Well, the um, doctors don't seem to believe that uh, it, it's straightforward. They are, are saying it's very difficult uh, and you'd get the impression that they won't be ready by January. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Dr. Boylan talked about 10% of cases resulting in admission as well. I mean, abortion, you know, isn't, isn't is necessarily is straightforward. Mm. You have a, a certain amount of people who will want to, and again, only now they're talking about it, but, you know, legalizing abortion on demand up to 12 weeks. Well, most abortions after nine weeks, as I understand it, are surgical rather than medical, if you like, using pills. So you, you will have you will have a demand for surgical treatments. That means hospital. Um, Dr. Boylan said he expects 10% of cases to result in admission. So taking that figure of 12,100, if that's what the Irish abortion rate rises to, that's 1,200 extra hospital admissions in a year. Mm. Now, of course, one would have to hope, and I'm, you know, I'm not hoping 
uh, on the contrary, I want Irish abortion figures to to stay as low mm. as possible, and everyone is a tragedy and an injustice. So but, I mean, but, I, I, I mm. hope I hope I'm wrong and, and that he's wrong, and maybe the likelihood is that you know I suppose the big fear has always been that once you legalise abortion, it, you know it becomes more and more normalised, and 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 the, and the figures will grow. I don't think mm. they were necessarily saying it's immediate that there would be a rate of twelve thousand abortions uh, a year. Uh, they're kind of saying that's what we need to work towards and isn't that really tragic and awful that in other words what they are now acknowledging is that there will be a, a normalisation of abortion that will lead to vastly more abortions. Okay but you have to introduce it to begin the <laughs> to begin getting to that target uh, so if the law changes and it's legalised from January onwards and the doctor's aren't ready, what will happen? Because we heard yesterday that uh, the Department of Health, the HSC, the GPs, the obstetricians and the gynaecologists are all supposed to have met and haven't done so yet. Yes, and, and you know, presumably they are banking on the idea that there won't be a deluge of demand and, 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 and perhaps, they're, perhaps they're right on that. I would say, though, that the, 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 their they're still moving with, you know, that the, there was focus on the fact that they weren't all meeting and there was a lot of talk about, you know, the, you know, the three levels of this, legislation and then guidelines and then, you know, then infrastructure. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, Michael, that for me, you know, you know my views on this, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very chilling to be at a meeting where the great and the good of medicine representatives of the ICGP, representatives of the Medical Council, uh, representatives... Uh, of the Institute of Obstetrician and Gynecologists and kind of on the one hand saying that they don't speak for all their members and there are different points of view but everything they were saying was basically completely mechanical about you know abortion is here now and it has mm. to be provided and you know the saying you know talking down the idea of, of a three-day mm. waiting period um you know a, no real reflection of the huge concern that that many medical and not just doctors but many medical people have that this is unethical harmful elective medicine well, and um, peter boylan was saying that that three-day period uh, was demeaning to women and he, he may have a point if a woman is going to have a, a, an abortion and it's legal to do so well why not just allow her to proceed instead of treating her like a naughty schoolgirl? Well, I asked them that question. You know, they said that, that there's no evidence that it's necessary. And you know, what do you mean by necessary? But you see, it was hard to see. If, if, you know, they, they had very little evidence on, on how it works. There was an acknowledgement that in places like, like the Netherlands and, and I think Germany, uh, you have such waiting periods. We see these these people aren't willing to look at abortion in terms of, is this something we should be trying to prevent? They didn't seem to be interested in the question that if you could show, for example, uh, that, you know, a lot of abortions wouldn't happen, mm. uh, lives would be saved, and that therefore the three-day waiting period might be justified. Well, they were saying that it you should treat adults like adults. I mean, I think you asked one of the doctors if you should tell somebody to give up smoking, and they said they wouldn't tell them to give up smoking. That, that was it, yeah. He was, the guy from the Irish Council of General Practitioners was saying, yeah, you know, because we, 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 I was asking, you know, we, would you not consider, um, you know, because, you see, there's all this talk about preventing crisis pregnancy and they want to talk about contraception and that's fine. But I was saying, well, why aren't you... Why aren't you interested in having a discussion about how to prevent abortions once crisis pregnancy takes place? So I was asking about, you know, could could we have a situation where, you know, 
where women were being encouraged, being given the full information, but being encouraged to consider not having an abortion. What about offering them, for example, a chance to see their ultrasound? But he was coming back with, oh, well, I wouldn't ever be advising people about stuff, actually. Mm. Would you just be kind of engaging in questions? I was saying, would you not, would you not advise somebody to give up smoking? I mean, it's this mm. kind of surreal world. Yeah, well, where well he said he wouldn't tell, he wouldn't tell adults what to do. He, he, he might present them with the options, uh, but he wouldn't be telling somebody to give up smoking. Well, I mean, I, 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 I would have thought that a good doctor will actually give you advice and say, you know, Mary, if you don't give up smoking, you will have a shorter life. Um, or, you know, would you consider changing your diet, John? Uh, because, you know, it's not good for you. I think we expect doctors to give advice. They don't get to control what they do. But if they're being professional, they give advice. Now, in the case of abortion, you're, you're kind of saying, you know, you, you, there, there is another so- social good here, which is, OK, like the Constitution has changed. That's true. Mm. So the, the Oireachtas has not been told by the people that they have to bring in abortion particular ways. The, the Oireachtas has been given full freedom to do it. Now, the people voted in the knowledge that they will, they intend to bring in a significant member of a, a measure of abortion. But in fact, what has happened is the Oireachtas has been given full freedom. So it would be open to politicians if there was the political will to say, OK, abortion is going to be legal, but it is something we are going to try and prevent because each abortion involves the loss of the life of an innocent child. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we are going to try and structure this in okay. a way that always respects women, but tries to protect innocent lives. Well, but there was nothing of, of that. There was no mention of unborn children until I started asking. OK, well, yeah. there's a, a long way to go before uh, the legislation is introduced in January. And uh, I suppose that's when it will be legalised and uh, the structure of uh, the legislation will be decided in the interim. But we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining Thanks, us, though, as always. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen. Michael Reed on LMFM. I imagine there's a a conversation taking place in County Offaly today about bringing home the Book of Duro. The Book of Duro may have been produced in County Offaly. It's named after the monastery in Duro. It it may have been produced in Iona off the coast of Scotland or in Lindisfarne. Uh, There is a a point to this, if you bear with me. What we do know uh, about the Book of Duro is uh, that it was produced in the year 1716 and given to the Pope as a gift. It's been in Trinity College for 450 years and it is said to be the precursor to the Book of Kells. The Book of Duro is going to the British Library as part of a, an exhibition of world importance and I suppose the argument in Offaly might be if the Book of Duro can go to the United Kingdom why can't it come to Offaly and if that is a, an argument perhaps it begs the same type of question about the Book of Kells. Let's talk to some local councillors about this, independent David Gilroy and Fine Gael's Sarah Riley. Good morning to you both. David Gilroy, what do you make of this? Hey, good morning, Michael and Sarah. How are you? Um, first of all, I think it's, it's uh, I very much welcome the news that, that um, some of our, our highest culture or heritage is, is going on the world stage again. Um, I think it's something that can only be a good thing with regards to the promotion of ourselves. When, with regards to the question of, of the book of Kells coming back to Kells, it, it, it gives an op- a timely opportunity perhaps to start the conversation again um, and to look at the, re- the things that need to be done and the serious implications of moving such seri- such documents around the around the, the country and around the world indeed. But it would be something a great opportunity to start the conversation about bringing the, the Book of Kells um, back to Kells, whether temporarily or permanently. Sarah Riley, now that we have started the conversation, I suppose Trinity College has proven that it is possible. 
Yes, and look, they have loaned out the Book, book of Kells indeed on a number of occasions before in the past. It's actually travelled internationally four times on its last visit in 2000 over to Australia. It unfortunately got damaged, one of the volumes. Um, but I suppose, look, the question is, am I more optimistic today than I was yesterday about the Book of Kells being returned to Kells based on this announcement? And if I'm, I'm being genuinely honest, the answer would have to be no. I am, however, I am more optimistic about the Book of Kells coming back to Kells based on the great work that has been done on the ground in Kells over the last number of years in terms of improving our offering to tourists and, and what we can do to now welcome them and provide them with activities on the ground. Um, just to give you a couple of, of brief um, examples, um, about the reopening of our Heritage Centre, um, the print works and the development of it, um, we have two wonderful um, festivals that occur in Kells every year um, you'd be well, well aware of and I'm sure your listeners are aware of also mm. uh, They won't attract people in the same numbers as the Book of Kells I mean take a look at what's happening in Trinity every single day of the week No but that's precisely my point Michael mm. I'm saying I'm not more optimistic about the Book of Kells coming back to Kells based on the announcement but I am more optimistic about it coming back to Kells based on the work that's been done on the ground and your listeners will be well aware that I have looked for a volume of cows to be put on display in cows over the years. But we, we have to be, um, we should be honest and upfront about things. We need to improve our infrastructure if we are going to come in with the chance of getting the book. It would be unfair of us to look for the book without having the proper infrastructure in place. The British Library mm. has specific rooms that with temperature controlled, humidity controlled, light controlled, um, to look after it. We need to ensure that that book is going to be available for another thousand years. And I suppose going back to what Councillor Gilroy has said, it opens up the conversation about what we really need to seriously start doing if we are going to be co- come in with a shot of getting one of those volumes back. Okay, and I, I think David Gilroy, Trinity has scoffed at the idea of it returning to Kells. It's not a, a plausible suggestion. So do we need to ask Trinity what makes it plausible? That's their obviously starting position, maybe. Uh, but obviously, with the start of any any great long journey, um, we have to start with building a relationship, um, and a relationship between Trinity and perhaps the town of Kells, and to make a link between those 500,000 tourists a year that come to see the Book of Kells, that they are made aware in some way that it, the Book of Kells comes from a town in County Meath called Kells, and that there's a link there so that we can start maybe having a dialogue between the authorities in, in, in Trinity and the, and the Kells, Kells area and the Boyne Valley area in general um, to talk about how we start that, even at that small link, the awareness to get people to come and, and to, to investigate and to see the wonderful things that as Sarah's highlighted and also to look at the origins as, as in if people were to go to Doro or indeed if we were to go to Iona which, mm. which is part of a, of a planned link that's taking place early next year between the council uh, to re-establish the, the links between Kells and Iona and indeed it would tie in Doro as well. So there, there's they were talking about a time when, when national boundaries didn't exist when these books were being written. There were areas of, of land and areas of, of, of ecumenical importance. So what we're trying to do is to tie in the whole idea and the context of the Book of Kells with its origins. Obviously, its future must be considered uh, paramount. Mm. We, have a, we, are only, we only have of a... Of course. Yeah. But, I mean, if it was to come to Kells, uh, would it attract people in the same numbers? Uh, uh, how great is cultural tourism? Because I'm sure that 500,000 people see the Book of Kells in Trinity, as you said a, a moment ago, every single year. But they're in Dublin doing other things at the same time, aren't they? Well, that's very true. But also, people go to see the Blar- kiss the Blarney Stone yeah. um, on their way somewhere else as well mm. to stop off in Blarney. So at some at some stage, a person thought it was a good idea to start telling people about the Blarney Stone. 
and it built its own momentum based around the structures of support and proper kind of investments and, and a narrative that's created around the, the, I suppose, the thing that people are coming to see, the, the site or the, 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 the book, for instance, in this case. So what we're talking about, it's not just a simple matter of transposing the book from Dublin to, to Kells. Mm. It's about creating an environment in which there's a natural link between Kells and Dublin now and Trinity and a natural academic link, a natural historic link, cultural link, that everybody who are part of this conversation are both their concerns are taken their concerns are taken seriously, their aspirations are taken seriously, and in any good conversation, it's a to and from. There. Okay, and I, I suppose that echoes uh, to some degree what you've been saying as well, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I, I just um, Councillor Gilroy is absolutely right in what he's saying about developing the links with Trinity College, and I, I have to say appreciation has to be given to the Kelvin District Tourism Network and the work that they have been doing on that front. Um, over the last number of years and um, they've been working hard in that regard Okay, we leave it there Thank you both indeed for joining us uh, this morning Fine Gael, Councillor Sarah Riley, Independent Councillor David Gilroy, that's all we've time for God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM Good morning, bye bye The Michael Reed Show Podcast Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie 